We return this morning to our studies of the Baptist distinctives. It has been almost a month now since we have taken up our studies in Baptist distinctives because of uh, the various other things that have occupied us for these weeks. But in those last three lectures, prior to our breaking off from this study, <clears throat> we took up our, <clears throat> we had taken up our doctrine of the Lord's table, the communion table, breaking of bread, Lord's table, whichever designation you prefer. That had been the focus of our attention for the last three lectures. And then we finished the last lecture with some thoughts on how we conduct ourselves with regard to our differences. Not That last lecture was not so much focused on what our differences are as it was focused on how we conduct ourselves toward others who differ with us. And uh, we gladly own them to be brethren with us in Christ, sharers of the grace of God in Christ. And so we wanted in that lecture to, to touch on how we react, interact, interact with those who differ with us, especially on these pertinent doctrines, which we call Baptist distinctives. I'd like this afternoon, however, to turn to our subject of the Lord's table and our communion observances again and press home more strongly our responsibility for purity in this matter. Whatever respect, honor even, we give to some who differ with us on these things, not just presently, but certainly over the course of history, the history of the church, whatever uh, honor and respect and regard we have for them, for their writings, etc. It is nevertheless our duty to guard the purity of the church and the purity of doctrine in the church uh, nonetheless. It is here after all that we that is, this church stands in such such stark contrast to others. Not just pedo-baptists, but what I call quasi-baptists. <laughs> Those who carry the name Baptist, but have long since ceased to care about doctrinal purity. 
especially on this subject of the Lord's Supper. I could go around the room and ask for testimonies, and we could hear varying testimonies for those from those of you, at least those of you among us who have a background in something that was at least called Baptist. And we would hear multiple different testimonies about how it has been handled in other places and over time. Many ignore it entirely. They just don't do it. I mean, I've talked to people who Baptists who belong to a Baptist church for years and have never had a communion session, never had breaking bread. Some just ignore the thing completely, or they observe it only as an ornament of high church ritualism. I think that my, my testimony would fall in that category, having been Southern Baptist. The Southern Baptists had a, an appointed time when the churches were supposed to observe the breaking of bread. It's almost sacerdotalism, really. Uh, you just, you had this time for this ornament of ritualism that you were supposed to go through, and the church did it. So there's all kinds of differences out there. And I'm, I am pressing for the fact uh, that we here in this church, this generation, certainly, the churches, the Baptist churches in this generation, yes, them too. But I am pressing for the fact that we here specifically in this church have a responsibility to maintain purity in this matter. And to reestablish God's intended order for his churches. So we take up again yet more considerations from the proponents of open communion. Now we've described that to you. You know what we mean by that. Open communion is those that hold to just throw the door open uh, you just you know if you're going to have a breaking of bread service you just throw the door open for any and all who believe that they uh, are believers and they can come and partake of the Lord's table and uh, I, I know some of this some of this ground I have covered before but I say to you I feel it's important for us, especially at least in these lectures, to press this matter, press for the purity of the church in these matters. And uh, Jeter taking up again uh, this some of the arguments that are placed for put in place for those who defend an open communion. Jeter responds to them, and he has this to say. He says, the scriptures furnish no certain example of the inner communion of churches. The scriptures, if we're going to hold the scriptures alone, sola scriptura, 
The scriptures, says Jeter, furnish no example of intercommunion between those New Testament churches. He says the nearest approach to it was the case of Paul breaking bread with the disciples at Troas. He was, but he was a divine, divinely authorized founder of churches. But whether he was a member of any local church in the sense which the phrase is now understood is very doubtful. If he was a member of any church, we do not know which one it was. If intercommunion was practiced by the members of the primitive churches, it was, we suppose, granted as a courtesy and not claimed as a right. There is a difference there. It's a distinction to be made there. And he's talking about now the first churches, New Testament. There was no law requiring it and no example encouraging it. It might have prevailed. Its prevalence so far as we can discern would have been consistent with the constitution and dis discipline of those churches. It was simply a matter of choice and of courtesy. We may reasonably take it for granted that had it been necessary or even desirable for the edification of the churches and the increase of brotherly love, the scriptures would contain some precept or example or intimation for its encouragement. But he says there is none. For the joint participation of the Lord's Supper by members of the same church, the scriptures furnish ample authority. But on the intercommunion of churches, they maintain a profound silence. Now, that's a very strong argument for those of us who hold to the scriptures, use of the scriptures only for our doctrine. That's a very profound argument. There is no, not even an intimation that the Lord would have churches share inter-communion breaking bread. Certainly no mandate for it, no requirement for it, no instruction for it, and no example for it. Jeter goes on to say open communion on the part of Baptists is not only unauthorized but impolitic. That word means unwise or harmful. It is not only unauthorized, authorized, authorized, it is impolitic. If it were divinely required, there should be an end to all controversy of the subject, that is, if it were divinely required. If it were merely permitted, churches should be left to the exercise of their own taste and judgment. We believe that it is substantially forbidden. Not only is it not required, not only is it not left to the individual choices of churches, Jeter says, 
it is substantially forbidden. But that if it were not, it would be impolitic for Baptists with their responsibilities and aims to practice it. They believe that on them devolves the duty of restoring the uh, the uh, ordinances of Christ to their primitive simplicity, design, and order, and of promoting the organization of churches according to the apostolic model. This is their mission, and they should avoid whatever tends to defeat it, and open communion clearly leads in that direction. So again, he is just simply making the point and making it well that there is not only is there no biblical mandate, not only is there no solid biblical evidence of its exercise, it is positively a harmful design if our purpose as Baptists is to carry believers back to the original apostolic patterns. Okay? And I keep pressing that because it's kind of like a, a dear friend of ours, the Gormleys and, and ourselves share a common friend in the church that we used to belong to. And our pastor used to say to this gentleman, well, brother, you, you got to keep a balance. Keep a balance. And his response was always the same. Brother, I'm trying to bring balance because you're way off on one end. I'm trying to bring balance from the other side. <laughs> well, the same is true here. We as Baptists here, we need to restore apostolic patterns and primitive doctrines, original doctrines and practices and methods methods in our in our churches. We need to restore the purity of the church. As Baptists, we don't have the luxury of entertaining things that tend to take us away from the primitive examples. And open communion certainly does. It is here after all that we, as I said, stand in such stark contrast to others, even other Baptists. Jeter points out one of the great evils that open communion breeds. Listen to it. He says, mixed church membership. I'm on page 108, by the way, of my particular book, Baptist Principles Reset. It's in that chapter entitled, Is Open Communion Demanded for the Edification of the Churches? Jeter says, mixed church membership follows open communion by logical necessity. Mixed church membership follows open communion by logical necessity. Communion at the Lord's table is a test of church fellowship. If Christians commune together, 
they may surely cooperate together in whatever is needed to support and extend that communion. The adoption of open communion brings not peace, but discord to Baptist churches. It opens the question of mixed church membership by which many of the English Baptist churches have been agitated and rent asunder. Of these churches, some are close, close communion, some are open communion, some are mixed membership, and not a few are battling over the subject of mixed membership. Yielding on the question of open uh, membership, as yield they must if they accept open communion, and are capable of feeling the force of an argument. Yielding on the question of open membership, the churches are met by the inquiry whether their officers shall be limited to Baptists. Why should they be if the churches are composed of Baptists and Paedo-Baptists, Immersionists and Sprinklers, it's unreasonable, unjust, and offensive if a church is composed of mixed membership to insist that its officers shall all be of one party. Such unfairness cannot be maintained. As a matter of fact, Baptist churches adopting mixed membership soon accept Paedo-Baptist deacons and pastors. And we know of one, do we not? <laughs> one that supposedly spearheaded the avant-garde of Reformed Baptists in this, in this part of the country, Fayette County to be specific. I remember when that church was established and I tried to throw a flag on the fact that they had a member who was being accepted and appointed to the eldership in the church who was himself a Paedo-Baptist and had never received believer's baptism. And believe you me, I didn't get anywhere with that argument. I was considered persona non grata and shut out. Baptist church, and uh, this is what Jeter is trying to make the point. If you, if you go for open communion, You've opened the door for mixed membership. If a Pedro-Baptist, or for that matter, a true Baptist from another congregation, can come into this congregation and break bread, then we are hypocrites to deny them to be able to come into this congregation and do anything else, including joining membership. Or then if they become members and they are still themselves Paedo-Baptist, we have no right to refuse them office. If they're in membership, they should be allowed office. If they're in communion, they should be allowed membership. You see how these one thing leads to the next, and that's Jeter's whole argument. There is no place to allow for this. It leads to confusion, and it 
draws Christ's churches away from the apostolic example and pattern. Holding firm, holding firm on Baptist principles in this matter of communion is distasteful and hard, says Jeter. Listen to what he says. The influence of open communion and mixed membership is decidedly unfavorable to the progress of Baptist principles. They are not adapted to a carnal and worldly taste. Baptists are accepted only on divine authority, and that authority to exert its power, proper influence must be frequently held up to the attention and pressed on the consciences of men. These principles are pleasing to the humble, self-denying, and devout. But they are distasteful to the proud and the fashionable. These would peril their salvation sooner than they would be publicly and solemnly immersed in attestation of their loyalty to Jesus. It is not so with paedo-baptism. It strongly appeals to parental affection, does not offend the most delicate taste, is recommended by the graces of poetry and the charms of painting. <laughs> He's referring to the world of art through the centuries. He says, oh, this, this paedo-baptism, my, my, my. It is recommended by the graces of poetry and the charms of painting and is practiced by thousands as a beautiful and seemly ceremony who do not admit its divine authority. It is entrenched in the creeds and honored in the practice of the most numerous respectable and influential Christian sects. It needs no advocates. Its history and associations give it influence and secure its perpetuity. Pado Baptists need no advocates. Its history and its associations give it influence and secure its perpetuity. What, what is he saying by that? They are in the ascendancy. They are in the majority. And the little small voice of the Baptists over here in the corner is a reproach. And those that would hold to the truth hold unequivocally to the truth and stand for it at all costs, will be despised, disapproved, and certainly not in the mainstream of popular Christianity. This is strong doctrine. This is a Baptist distinctive. And it has never made Baptist popular. But we believe it is the New Testament example. And I wanted to press today, just this lecture, just press to your heart 
this matter and the conviction of it. We must stand for biblical purity and that will never make us popular in any area of doctrine, certainly not in this one. I don't even know how many churches, there's no telling, how many churches right here in Coweta County you could go to today Anyone could go to and break bread with them. They would have no problem with it. We are certainly not the majority. And so I give you this, this conviction, this Baptist distinctive with conviction. We have any questions or further enlargement or comment? On this today. I'm upset with what you just said, but I'm aware of it. You cannot go to the church Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. You can't break bread with Catholics in a Catholic church. They will do it. They have more respect and regard for their own membership than most Baptist churches. We're speaking about acting. What scripture do explicitly say? And this comment Jesus made, he said, "Open oh, communion on the part of Baptists is not only unauthorized, but in politics." Mm-hmm. Close that paragraph. Open communion clearly leads in this direction. That's a strong, that's a strong point that made there. That is that if nothing else, you can say that when you. Uh, the whole thing to get a loose of nothing or let the camera be nosing there. And it begs the question if you're communing with these folks, where do you draw the line in standing against the will of anybody else? Right. Um, and the scriptures are explicitly clear about that. In the first chapter of the book of Galatians, Paul is, he said, I marvel, verse 6, in that Greek there, I'm amazingly astounded. That you are so soon removed from him that called you unto another gospel. Right. And if that right there was no other measure to use by the local church for communion, that would exclude a lot. If you are going to consider somebody participating in communion based on whether or not they are propounding another gospel, that rules out a whole lot. Yes, sir. Right. You sir. can't say that it rules out uh, communion with those of like faith, and that's why people. Dr. Gill, for example, I think they would allow with a letter from the sending church. Um, if that church practiced the belief exactly like them, they would allow it. Right. It was close to me. Right. And, and fair enough, and that's okay. But, but if you rule out those with another gospel, that certainly rules out, I mean, in my mind, that rules out the Pato Baptists of every player, rules out Armenians and a whole bunch of other. Yeah, rose out to Baptists that are of a different uh, doctrinal persuasion. That is, Baptists by name who are not Baptists by doctrine. I don't think it can be urged too strongly that the give up this distinctive is largely to give over to the Baptists. Yes. Because once you have given over 
this as a principle, you have also rejected, in all, for all practical matters, belief of baptism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. You, you are saying to those who are not baptized according to the biblical pattern, that's no longer a problem. That's not important. Exactly. So, what is there left at that point which would distinguish you as a Baptist church other than nominally what might be on your church sign in front of the building? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There, there is nothing. Mm-hmm. And writer after writer through the centuries has made that point as strong as possible. Uh, of course, Dr. Baldwin, William Cleveland Wilkinson, and, and many others. But there have always been those who have attempted to have their cake and eat it too, the spiritual thinking, uh, on this subject. Um, Robert Hall uh, was a large proponent, with him, Baptist Noel at the same time, uh, of open communion. And unfortunately, that turmoil uh, ultimately imperiled all of the Baptist churches in England. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And, and sadly, uh, a generation later, it was Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon. Yeah. Yeah. It was no doubt. As as John T. Christian put in, in his history of the Baptist, Mr. Spurgeon was wonderfully inconsistent. Yeah. In that because <laughs> he uh, he. Uh, Advocated open communion, but would not have uh, Pedro Baptists as uh, uh, officers in the church, deacons or uh, elders or pastors. But but it it ultimately leads to the, the practical destruction of what it is to be a Baptist. To give over this, mm-hmm. is to give over believers' baptism, is to give over the regenerate nature. Of, of the church, and it, you're, you're knocking over each domino, as it were, mm-hmm. in that chain of distinctives mm-hmm. uh, that, as we so call them, in what makes a Baptist a Baptist. I'm not even sure in most Baptist churches. I mean, I I I, I never, of course, struggle at all with are drawing clear clear and bold lines between ourselves and Peter. But I really do uh, grieve over uh, the fact that we have multiplied millions who carry the name Baptist who are as far off on this matter or any other matter as you could possibly be. I mean, uh, they're not Baptist at all. They've given over Baptist principles and given over... I don't even know why they continue to keep the name. A lot of them today are not. We have many Southern Baptist—I mean, active, signed-on Southern Baptist churches uh, in this county right now—who have do not have Baptist in their name of their church at all. They just will not have it. But and you got to look at the example of uh, some of you could. Tell us, you know, when is the last time in the church you came from that they actually had a communion service 
and how often did they do that? Uh, it's almost non-existent. They just put it away. But they've given over, as John says, that term John used, given over. You've given over first one thing, then another thing, then another thing. Well, this, this matter of closed communion is, is right at the heart of it. Because as John says, it's a dominance. If you give over on that, you've essentially given over on baptism, period. And if you've given over on that, now you go to Luke's point, have you given over on what is the essence of the gospel? Are you really preaching a true gospel? Is the gospel that you have the real gospel, or is it another gospel? And so it's a very slippery and very quick slide from giving over on this and finding yourself in absolute uh, false doctrine, a false gospel. And I, I, I wanted to press again this matter. I'm not trying to beat a dead horse. But in this lecture today, I, I didn't want to leave this subject uh, again without, and I may have more to say next week from a different, different angle on this matter, that we can't press too much this matter of, of biblical communion. And you can't, and of course we haven't said much in these lectures so far at all, but it ties into that is the matter of church discipline. How can you exercise? I mean, what discipline does the church have? Well, this is a principal piece of it. The communion. If you bar someone from breaking bread, they of necessity will feel themselves separated from the body and this wall between, and that creates a discomfort as it ought to, to spur them to repentance, to be brought back into the fold, into the communion. And... Uh, so it's this this whole thing of the breaking of bread. This is a one wonderful and important Christian distinctive carried by those called Baptists. Any other comment or question?